Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined. I'm your host, Arya Cohen-Wade, and my guest today is Josh Barnard. Josh, could you please introduce yourself? Yeah, glad to be here. I'm Josh Barnard. I've been in the tech industry for about, uh, oh, almost 20 years, something like that. I guess 18 years, and I spent uh, two years working at Twitter about five years ago, back in uh, 2016, 17, uh, on the live video side of things there. But uh, so I'm, I know a lot of people who, I won't say I know a lot of people who work there. I know a lot of people who worked there until a week or two ago, and now I'm not sure I know anyone who still works there. So, <laughs> Okay, wow. Well, thank you for, for coming on. And I should say, we um, went to college together and knew each other a little bit back then. Um, and I guess reconnected on Twitter. So this is, so yes. I've done a couple of episodes on the topic of, of Twitter, but talking, I want to talk to you because you have, you know, most of the people commenting about this are users or pundits or something. And I haven't seen, I mean, obviously there's people who know the tech side of it who are weighing in, but um, not that many people are bridging, <laughs> bridging the gap. So yeah, I was hoping to talk to you about what's happening to Twitter. And we should say we're, we're taping this Friday afternoon, November 18th. Uh, you know, the story is changing by the hour basically and and like chaotic things are happening constantly and so the <laughs> the latest basically was that seemingly a bunch of people who were not laid off at twitter uh chose to resign and get a severance package yesterday and then this i've seen different accounts but maybe um the company is like between one third and one eighth of what it was when musk first acquired it in terms of staffing but um I've seen even lower estimates. I have no idea who, I don't know where these data comes from, to be honest, but it uh, doesn't seem like anyone knows, which is its own strange story, right? So, Right. Okay. So yeah, first of all, why don't you say a little bit about your background and how you uh, got into working in the tech industry? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I've been working in tech pretty much since I graduated college back in 2005. Uh, I worked for a couple of big companies, Microsoft and Amazon, so early in my career, I joined Twitter in 2015. Uh, I had been involved in, I still am involved in uh, digital video uh, streaming uh, technology stuff. And uh, I ran sort of the backend team that implements a lot of the video and audio and image processing stuff. So if you upload a tweet or a photo or video, obviously ran the engineering team that builds all the backend services for that. So I was there for a couple of years. Um, I had my, I, I, there were things I loved about it. There were things I hated about it. I obviously did not stay a very long time relatively, but um, it's definitely been kind of sad to see all this stuff go down. But uh, Well, can you, yeah, can you talk a little bit more about what it was like working there, maybe compared to another large uh, yeah. tech company? Well, I would say it has a very kind of uh, friendly and sort of very like positive energy to the culture there. At least when I was there, you know, the people get along really well. There's a, a very, a good sense of camaraderie. Like, I think that's part of what makes this whole thing feel kind of crazy to me is just, this is so different from the kind of culture that I experienced there. Now that culture might not be ideal. I wouldn't say it is like, I did not feel a big push or a big uh, drive to get stuff done there the way I felt it at other companies. Huh. Um, but I do think that that's kind of like, it makes it an even, this shift even more monumental. It's not like they're going from this very hard driving culture to an even more hard driving culture. Uh, so I think it's a huge shift in that regard. I didn't, I never felt super confident in leadership there having a plan uh, in terms of like the product and where it was going and how to grow. You know, they've kind of been stuck for years at this sort of plateau of whatever it is, 300 million monthly users, which is not nothing, but like they've never figured out a way to really take it up from there. Um, and I think arguably that's why it ended up in a sale. 
it does not seem like Elon Musk has a plan to go beyond that either, if we're honest. But uh, to me, that was like part of what I left is I just didn't see that vision for how they could get past that, that kind of point that they'd hit. Hmm. Okay. I mean, he seems to have, well, he, does he have a plan? He seems to have ideas or something. It's, yeah. It seems scattershot from, from the outside of implementing yeah. something very quickly, then withdrawing it, and then, you know, forcing people to, um, to sign like a loyalty oath more or less or leave the company. Um, what did you think when you heard that, that Musk wanted to, to buy the company? I was kind of, I mean, I think I probably felt the same as most people that it was kind of like, okay, is, does he want to really own and operate this thing? Or is he just frustrated that people tweet mean stuff about him sometimes or believing some of the, what I think is largely nonsense of like right-wing voices are being silenced or certain political views are not welcome. Like it felt like that to me. It still does. I think like it still feels like his primary motivations for wanting to buy it were not like if I was going to spend $44 billion on something, I would feel like my motivation would be, I really believe I have a plan here. I can see that this is a valuable business worth more than paying for it. If it was just being run the right way. I don't see any indication that he feels that way or that that was the reasoning behind the decision to, to make the acquisition. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, he, he seems impulsive and, you know, like he changes his mind a lot and obviously he tried to get out of the deal in various yeah. ways and then ultimately agreed to do it under some duress. <laughs> um, which is its own, like, yeah, why, how that all folded out and why the board's pressuring. I think the board kind of was, they had no choice. Like, there was so much money on the line. They had no choice at that point but to push him to complete the deal. I can kind of understand. Now, I, I, do I think the board did a good job in the run-up before the offer even? Probably not. But, you know, in this case, like, I don't know what people want them to have done. They can't turn down that kind of money for a company that's pretty visibly not worth that much money. <laughs> right. And then, you know, it, it seemed like he, I mean, the tech bubble may have finally burst. It's unclear, but at least it's been, you know, tech yeah. stocks have got away down and like he put his offer in like three weeks before. The worst week. timing possible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So when, well, yeah, it seems like a lot of the complaints, well, I mean, people have a lot of different complaints about Twitter, but the ones that he's receptive to seem to be around moderation and the, this idea that there's like a liberal or leftist or woke quote unquote slant to like the people who work at Twitter or yeah, that they're silencing conservative voices. And obviously Trump was kicked off the platform. And um, one thing that seemed to irritate Musk was um, suspending the Babylon Bee, which is this sort of right wing version of the onion that does, um, you know, parody news that is not, it's pretty unfunny, but yes, they, they, they had like an anti-trans article and that seemed to, that that seemed to get them suspended or something and um and that really set off musk apparently so when i mean when you were there what it like was it is it full of woke people with blue hair who are trying to silence the right or or, or i mean that's the caricatured view is how did that strike you you know I, I would not deny the company if you're asking about like the employee base i mean it's in san francisco it's you know wealthier you know tech People largely is the user base. I'm sure that there's a, a diversity of political view, but like for sure, I would be stunned if the if the lean, political leanings of the employee base were not left. That said, like I believe the company strives to do, it really did strive to to be balanced, to be even handed as much as it could be. There's always limits there. Like the two sides of the political spectrum do not at any given time 
operate with identical levels of malfeasance or whatever you want to call it, right? Like, uh-huh. and I'm sure there are places where the left would, there have been times in history where the left was the ones pulling this kind of stuff. But like, I think it's hard to be in this country right now and feel like the left is doing the same number of egregious things as the right in terms of some of these things. And so I think naturally there's that feeling of being, you know, uh, persecuted, but I didn't see evidence when I was there that like, there was certainly not any open, oh no, we can't allow that. This is a this is a left leftist company, not a right wing company. We need to tamp that down. I think, and I think you know the trust and safety people who've largely been chased out or or either resigned or quit or been fired, like they really did. I think try to really embrace free speech, like in its real meaning of like not letting governments censor people's voices, rather than this sort of to me made up free speech idea of like. I have to make sure that Nazis get to say whatever they want about the Jews. Like that's not to me what free speech really is about. Uh-huh. So you were there during a maybe pivotal time in Twitter because it was, well, did Trump declare for president before or after you, you started there? I think I was there for the election. So I was there kind of, and there was a lot of, there was a lot of intern. I mean, maybe a great counterexample to the question you asked a moment ago is like, I was there. There were tons of employees lobbying Jack. You got to kick Trump off the platform. You cannot leave him here. Look at some of this stuff. And there were, you know, people seem to forget, like there were legitimately things he was tweeting that were like threats against the lives of American citizens or statements that bordered on illegal. Like there was a lot of employees that were very angry about that, that were lobbying leadership to ban him. And I think there was a lot of resistance to it. Like it was very clear that like, the company, the powers that be of the company felt that from a free speech, whatever you call it, free speech or or free marketplace video, whatever you want to call it, they felt that it was important to give a platform to the president of the United States. You know, that feels crazy to say, but they felt like <laughs> it's not unreasonable to let, for it is better for people to know what this guy is thinking and saying than it is to not have them know. And it was only, I think, when it got to the point of like real... Now, whether the thing that actually, I don't even remember what the thing was that sort of broke the camel's back on. Well, I mean, it was, it was a couple days after January 6th, I think. Yeah. Um, Maybe the account was locked on January 6th. I'm trying to recall. No, because he's, well, he sent out a message. There was a video message. It is kind of so much, so much happened, but it was in the immediate days after January 6th that his account was finally suspended. Right. It was like, literally it took, it took it actually achieving violence, I guess, before they finally banned him. Right. There were definitely people who felt it should have been done years in advance. And I think that it's a kind of, to me, the company was so, whether you want to call it patient or whatever you want to call it, like they really, I think, tried to resist doing that because they felt it was better to like give people, give a guy like that the speech, let him speak to people, let people see what he's saying and make their own decisions. Mm-hmm. Um. So you, so you were working on video and yeah. that's maybe has different you know, like implications for this sort of stuff than, than regular, than just text or image does. I mean, how did you think about that sort of thing? Because, you know, there's been these horrible incidents where like someone like live streamed a shooting or, or something like that, or people like taping themselves, yeah, committing violence against other people or committing suicide or something like that. How did you think about that sort of stuff or, or incendiary political speech or, or yeah, or just, you know, pornography, I guess, would be another thing that, that doesn't get us still on Twitter. And, you know, that, that a lot of that is on video. How did you think about these sort of issues related to video? Well, 
the incident that really like stuck out in my mind that happened there was uh, there's this, I guess he's a political writer, Kurt Eichenwald, who has epilepsy. Oh, yes, yes. Someone intentionally, while I was there, intentionally sent him a video designed to trigger and successfully designed to trigger seizures. I mean, it was like literally physically attacking someone using video on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that did bring into kind of like stark relief for me. You know, this is like, this is real stuff. Even though it's virtual, it's just the internet. You can ignore it was the theory. Like it's it's not the case. Like it, it does matter. And it and it can reach out into real life, right? Indirectly or very directly, right? Right. And I, I believe, if I'm remembering the details of that correctly, Kurt Eichenwald did have a seizure because of he viewed this video, yeah. and then the, the person who sent it to him was later, I believe, criminally prosecuted, or, or at least maybe there was just like a civil case against him which he lost. So there was that person got in trouble either criminally or with some sort of civil penalty. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if that exactly answers your question, but yeah, like I think. It didn't feel that different to me in the terms of the video. It's just a much harder problem with video, like an images, right? It's like with text, there's a degree to which it's like kind of straightforward to see how you can sort of censor it. But with video, it's just there's so much more data there. It's even harder to do any kind of automated detection of what kind of content is in there. And you really kind of there and don't get me wrong, Twitter actually had a pretty mature backend in terms of doing things like automated detection of child pornography or automated detection of certain kind of copyrighted materials or certain other kinds of things that are sort of not allowed, but mm-hmm. there, it is harder, right? It's much harder with video and audio to, to sort of find these things and figure out what's, what's okay. What's not okay to have on the platform. Right. And, and one way that Twitter has stood out from some of the other social media networks or media sites is they do allow pornography to exist on the platform. Whereas I'm, Pretty sure if you tried to upload, you know, your amateur porn to YouTube, they <laughs> have algorithms that would detect it somehow. Whereas I was joking about this a month or so ago on Twitter. Like if, if there's a random th- a random phrase trending and you click on it, um, there's like some chance, like a 5% chance or so that you're going to see pornography if you just start scrolling down. And I remember I, I saw Times Square. This was like a month ago. I saw Times Square trending. And my first thought was, oh, there was some sort of like a bomb went off in Times Square or something. So I clicked on it. And it was just, you know, the first two tweets were just random. And then the third one was like a woman like having sex, saying like, I'm going to be in Times Square later to have sex with anyone who wants. And it was like video of her having sex. So we used to go through, we we would track obviously the sort of top video posting accounts. And it was, you'd go, you'd have your top 10 list and your top 10 list, top 10 video posters would be like Bleacher Report Sports, Hardcore XXX videos tweeted, It'd just be like this intermingled list of like the largest publications and sports broadcasters and and media companies in the world mixed in with YouPorn and RedTube and whatever other you okay, know. So I assume were there were traffic back then. internal discussions about whether you know Twitter should be like a family friendly, you know, sort of. PG-13 I think they did side. a lot to try and there there was automated and manual tooling to sort of like flag accounts and videos as being sort of not safe for work and cordon those things off so that they don't show up in search the same way that other things, you kind of have to be looking for them to find them. Um, I didn't actually hear a lot of debate, to be honest, of like, when I was there, I never heard debate of like, oh, we shouldn't allow this stuff on the platform. Now, I don't know if that's because it was driving revenue or or what. Well, that's but. interesting because it, I mean, it did sort of have, I mean, for my, what I could understand of Jack Dorsey's ideology mm-hmm. was sort of a libertarian, you know, a libertarian vision yeah. and sort of like, yeah, letting, letting things 
beyond there, you know, was the default. Whereas maybe on like on there's a whole running debate on Instagram, as far as I understand, about showing nipples or yeah. you know, a male a male torso with nipples. That's fine. A, like a woman breastfeeding or something might be like the algorithm might catch it. And then just a topless woman, you could get your account canceled or something. So, you know, it was do you think it was just that sort of libertarian ethos that made it so that you know porn thrived on i think on so like I, to be honest like i wasn't no i was on the engineering side so i was involved in those things but uh yeah i never saw a move to there were definitely discussions of like how do we better flag stuff how do we better tag things but not of how do we get rid of it mm -hmm. now you'd also lose out golden moments like uh Ted Cruz uh, retweeting uh, pornography or whatever, right? but uh, <laughs> okay, I but yeah, I believe his he, he his account yeah. liked yes a, a okay. porn video, yeah. uh, which I assume was a staffer, not actually him. Although I guess we'll never fully we'll never know. know. But, but yeah, that was an iconic <laughs> Twitter moment, and I believe it. God, I, I have so much Twitter nonsense in my mind. I believe it was like you know step stepmother porn <laughs> was you know the specific thing that was faved in this what became its own meme right i don't even yeah know the woman the, like biting the her woman finger. in the glasses leaning against the pole or whatever. oh boy <laughs> um yeah it really is i mean i i did a joke tweet with that the um a replicant from uh, um you know giving his dying the, you know um you people wouldn't believe what i've seen but there really is a lot of bizarre stuff that's happened on yeah, twitter more, more so than other social media sites okay well, I guess one other one other thing I'd mention there is like I kind of just made it occurred to me in my head, like as I said, you know, I was on the engineering side. Like I think part of what's been fascinating to me about some of the Elon Musk stuff is there's all this stuff getting posted about him wanting to review devs' code or figuring out which right. engineers really make a difference and whatever it is. And like putting aside how dumb some of those methods are for actually identifying good engineering or bad engineering, like. Twitter's problems are not and have not been engineering problems since the days of the fail. Well, like if you look at Twitter and you're like, what's wrong with that company? The problem is not that the Android app isn't fast enough or that the timeline recommendations aren't good enough. Like, I don't believe those are the things that drive the problems for Twitter. Uh -huh. I think it's a lot, like you said, it's a lot more about moderation and content decisions and how advertisers view the platform and... Like those are the things that are problem. Those are those are product problems, or or those are not technical problems. Let's put it that way. Okay, that's interesting. So yeah, so something that the the site. I mean, the company is like leaking to the press, like you know, like the worst days of the Trump White House or something. So yeah. so like every email that's getting circulated goes to a journalist, and they're posting it on Twitter, of course. It, yeah, so there. It seems like Musk is he like wants the high level engineers and developers to like come and like show him like their ten best lines of code that they like wrote. I mean, I don't know anything about like writing code at all, but like that didn't make people were like, you know, like what are the ten best like strokes of paint you had done if you were a painter or something? Like it it, it didn't make a lot of sense to me. So when I sent it to you, you you asked, is this real? Um, and it, it, as yeah. far as I know, I mean, it's a legit reporter who sent this out. Like, what, what did you think of of that? And like, does that show that Musk doesn't know like anything or, or like, what I do you mean, make of that? It's sort of just an insane. If, if you said, hey, what are some projects or, or things you deliver, features you delivered or something that you're most proud of? Okay, I can understand that. right? And maybe that's maybe it's a fair question. Or maybe it's not. But it's like, what have you delivered for the company you're proud of? Lines of code you are proud of is just like. It's like going to an architect and be like, show me the like doors that you're the proudest of having put in these buildings or something, right? It's like, what? That has nothing to do, or do with your job. It doesn't really, it's just such a strange question. It's like, I, I, don't, I don't even know where to begin. Like, 
that's just not how development works. And it's not how software engineering, certainly how software engineers would think about their contributions to a company. And as someone who's been managing software engineers for a decade, like I can't imagine trying to evaluate an engineer's abilities or quality or, or usefulness to the company or any of those things based on like, show me your best line of code, right? Like, that's just a very strange question. I don't even know how to, how to, what, what analogy makes sense for that. Okay. So it does, I mean, does this show that Musk somehow doesn't understand like modern technology? I mean, he's, he's more, I mean, he started at PayPal with a company that became PayPal, I think, but like yeah. his more recent stuff is more like engineering, like physical engineering with rocket ships and cars and stuff. So maybe he thinks it's like, you know, show me like the, the door handle that you designed that you think is like the best door handle or something and it, that he's going to look at it. So maybe yeah. that in the physical world, that makes more sense. I mean, yeah. What do you like? What do you think he's thinking? There's no evidence in the, with all the stuff that's leaked, there's no evidence he has a clue what software, how software engineering works or what like, and like I said, I don't know that that's necessary to, if, if you're talking about like someone needs to fix quote unquote Twitter I don't believe the engineering is the problem. So I don't believe, I don't know that that's necessary that the person running the company be an engineer or uh, that they understand to that level. But like, he's he's kind of wading into that domain and he seems very unknowledgeable. Like these questions he's asking, even like the whole lines of code thing is very, there was some idea of like counting lines of code. I mean, that is sort of like evaluating painters by like how many gallons of paint they used in putting in p- painting their paintings, right? Like, Many engineers, good engineers, would say, my job is to use the fewest lines of code possible to achieve, to accomplish my goals, because that means less complexity, better performance, better maintainability, better readability, that, you know, you want to design simple systems, right? Right. As opposed to like, oh, let me, let me churn out the most, you know, you're measuring quantity rather than quality very, very baldly. So that is very strange, and it does not really align with someone who really has an understanding of what software engineering looks like. And like I said, that might be fine if you if you knew that about yourself and you said, I'm here, I'm a product guy, I'm not an engineering guy, that would be fine. But at the point where you're like, you know what, I'm going to go look at the lines of code people have and decide whether to fire them or not based on their best line of code, that's sort of an just an insane proposition. <laughs> okay, so yeah, from the... The, a layperson's perspective, I also thought that this didn't make any sense. Um, well, you were right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so if you had, you know, if you were still working at Twitter and you did not get laid off in the initial layoffs, and then you got this, you know, uh, ultimatum. Yeah, ultimatum or with three months severance, or you're now signing up for the hardcore, you know, version of working at Twitter, what, what would you have done? I think the only thing that makes this complicated, first of all, I think like a year ago, that question would have been super easy. I think that the state of the tech business right now, the bubble having seemed to have popped, like there's not a lot of companies laying off rather than hiring. I think that all makes it a slightly harder question, right? And it's very easy for me having a job and enough money to be fine for a time and, you know, a house with a roof over my head. It's easy for me to say, oh, I would, I would just take the money. But I do think it, is just such a, I don't understand why anyone would stay. I really don't like with the exception of people who have visas where maybe that's the one other, another example of the case where just like, they can't say no, they can't leave with the exception of people who are trapped for one or other financial or visa related reason. I don't know why you'd stay. And I think it's sort of like this classic problem to some degree in the tech business of 
people have this, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, like this overly rosy or very um, just this image of a startup as like the ultimate thing that we want to accomplish. And like, I want my company to run like a startup. And the thing about a startup is if, if he was starting a new company, a new Twitter 2.0, and he wanted all these people to join and be quote unquote hardcore, they would get stock options. They would get upside that would say, hey, if you, if you, you know, are working 100 hour weeks and you kill yourself over this, but it succeeds, you're going to benefit. But here you're going to people who have, you know, sort of steady corporate jobs and you're saying, hey, I want you to work twice as much as you used to for no financial benefit. And I don't believe there was a great thread today on Twitter, actually, from someone who left basically saying, like, I didn't see the vision. Like, that was the reason I left. It wasn't that I hate Elon Musk. It wasn't I disagree with some of these decisions. Like, what is the vision? Like, why is this going to succeed? He hasn't said anything internally to people. All we know is what's been tweeted out. And there's no evidence in those tweets that he's got some plan where Twitter is actually doing something different than it has done. Not little tweaks, but like we have a plan where Twitter operates differently, has a strategy that, you know, is really unique from the old strategy. So to me, it's a no brainer. Take the three month severance. These are really good engineers. Generally speaking, like Twitter for all of its faults, like it has a very strong engineering culture. They have to build, they've built services there that scale to honestly kind of insane degrees. One of the things that stood out to me there was, you know, we had to stand up a new service while I was there to handle some of the live video stuff. And it was like, the hard part of that service was not getting it to run a million requests per second. Normally, that's like an insanely daunting task at a company to scale a new service up to that. But at Twitter, it just felt like, oh, no, 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 we know how to build things to that scale. We just got to implement the part of it that does what we need it to do. That is a unique, you know, there's not a lot of companies that have that those kind of chops. And I think in a culture where there is some kind of hiring, these Twitter, you know, Twitter engineers are going to be able to find things that they are looking for out in the market now. That might be hard for the next few months or however long based on this current economic climate. But I do believe that like, I would have been surprised if this hadn't been the outcome. If, if what we're seeing reported that 75, 80% of people took the severance, like that's not at all surprising to me. I would have been surprised if the opposite occurred. Mm -hmm. Okay. Going forward, you know, so last night after it was reported, I guess that so many people had quit. And then it was reported that they like locked down all the offices and like yeah. the bad people's employment badges wouldn't work to get in anymore. There was sort of a, um, you know, the Titanic is sinking sort of both, you know, elegy and celebration among the self-hating Twitter users and yeah. the, the, the gif of the band playing from the James Cameron Titanic movie saying like, it's been an honor serving with you gentlemen was, you know, probably used a hundred thousand times or something. Cause it's, yeah. th there's a weird ethos among people who use Twitter of sort of like, we're in the trenches. <laughs> like this is a war we're suffering. And for what exactly? And yeah, sort of like our service, <laughs> our service has ended or something. Well, and this idea of people like clicking F5 on Twitter webpage, expecting that like any minute now <laughs> it's going to be gone. Right. right. Okay. So it's still, so it did not, the website did not stop working. What do you, do you have any thoughts about what could happen given that a lot of people who used to maintain the website are taking the buyouts? Like, okay, could it, could it completely collapse or could it just like everything stops working as it used to? I mean, it, or as it has the past couple of years, like the fail whale that used to happen a lot. So it used to just like the website would go down for some length of time and it became a joke and they used this image of a whale. Um, 
so that used to be a semi-regular occurrence and i guess the <laughs> they improved the back end such that that it hasn't gone down entirely in a while like will it just be that like outages and sort of it's not functioning as well there's as a lot it? of a lot of prognostication about this and i i don't know i mean i i'm highly skeptical of the idea that like you know that there's whatever 7000 employees and every one of them has a different finger in a different hole in the dike and <laughs> and you know you know they all leave you know a bunch of them leave and you have you're now the countdown is on the site's going to collapse like i don't believe that's the case but i do i think it's more likely that over time you start to accumulate issues that you just you start to basically have rot is the way to think about it of like thing because any large scale service like this you're not operating in a vacuum you're not it is not a contained thing that just keeps working right it's like you have all these dependencies where you're reaching out to other services you're relying on updated hardware you're just you're generally there's this is not a closed ecosystem and over time those changes start to accumulate and you start to have to make updates and if you're not making them things will start to get brittle like i don't know what that looks like and whether they can sort of reshuffle hire people or reshuffle support or or make changes to address that fast enough to avoid stability problems like i i don't know i do think it would be a very big challenge to like be on a 10% staff or whatever they're on and be trying to like do a lot of new feature work like there's going to be a very large burden of support there always is and it's like let's say that was 10% of the work previously well if you lose 90% of the people now is that 100% of the work, 50% of the work, just to keep the lights on, so to speak, right? Just to keep things running. Mm-hmm. I think it's gonna be hard to make investments with that, you know, minimal of a staff. But I, yeah, I don't I don't know what to expect. Like, could things all go sideways next week, like, or Sunday? I mean, the, the World Cup was historically one of the largest driver, like a, a World Cup goal is one of the things that drives like the most Twitter traffic kind of in a, 20 second period. you mean like a literal a literal goal in a world cup game like people are tweeting goal or right or like literally like there is a goal six million people see it on television and all tweet at once oh my god did you see what Messi did and you get this huge flood of traffic like that is historic those kind of events are what kind of tax the system uh-huh. i expect that suddenly it's like you know i think it's a well-designed system that's going to be resilient for the most part it's just like eventually all of these little problems not getting fixed will start to accumulate is what I would expect to happen. And it's going to make it harder and harder to make investments in the platform because you're going to be constantly just trying to keep things running. Right. You know, and I'd be interested in your perspective on this. I mean, you sort of mentioned, you know, Barstool Sports being a popular video thing. When you look at the, like the global trending things, like 75% of them are sports. And it seems like a lot of what people talk about on Twitter is really just whatever they're watching on TV. And most people are watching sports. And so it's, you know, thinking about this as like this free speech public square sort of thing, I was comparing it to more like, you know, a sports talk radio or something, except everyone is participating. And, you know, yeah, watching, <laughs> watching a game and then tweeting your reactions seems to be more of what the average Twitter user does than like debating abstruse, you know, political philosophy or, or something. Is, yeah. <laughs> is well, that I, accurate? I think, I think, um, when I was so working on live video at Twitter, whatever, five years ago, we, we ran Thursday night football. That was like the year we had the rights to Thursday night football. Um, so I kind of got a front row seat there and it was also right before the elections. We were running live video feeds that you could kind of see the video and tweet and see all the tweets about the debates between Hillary Clinton and, and Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. The debates drove 
as much or more traffic than sports. So I think there's kind of like a few things that happen live, events that are happening live that people are absorbed in. And I think sports is a big one. I think politics can be a driver. Like I think when you have something like the election we just had in the US, that does drive a ton of of um, interest and traffic for sure. So I think, but there are kind of a few verticals, if you will, that tend to be the focus areas of, of kind of what people are are doing. I think the idea, the theory behind live video on Twitter was what you said. It's like people are basically tweeting about what they're watching. Then why not have them watch it on Twitter? Uh, I think so. I do think there's something to that for sure. But it is a little weird that like if sports is such a big part, like that doesn't seem nearly as involved in the whole woke and and, and leftist debate, right? But yeah, I mean. <sighs> Do, do like do normal people still use Twitter? Do you think the way that normal people use Facebook? I don't know. I don't know. Like I didn't use Twitter at all until I worked there, and I have not yeah. stopped since I since I worked there. I kind of got hooked, and I think many mm. people are hooked. There's this running meme, obviously, of just like it's a hell site. I hate that I use it. It makes me hate myself, but I can't stop. Like I don't feel that way. Like it's it's a great. <laughs> I try if I try to quit, it's just like there was something like a couple of weeks ago where it was like. You know, I went off it for half a day and then something happened and I was like, oh, I got to get on there and figure out that, oh, you know what? There was a, it's unpleasant. There was a shooting in Seattle at a school mm -hmm. here. And I was like, what's going on? Where do I get information about that? Well, the place I would go to get the latest information is to go to Twitter. That's how I know what's going on. Uh, and so I think that that part of the site, like it's a very well done in that regard. And, and that is hard to replicate elsewhere. Do normal, quote unquote, normal people use it for that? I'm not sure. Like, I, I don't know what call this is normal, but right. 300 million people, like some of them have to be normal, right? But um. <laughs> mm, that's an interesting, uh, interesting question. Um, yeah, I, I think statistically some of them would have to be. But um, yeah, I mean, it's quite good for breaking, for following breaking news. Yeah. And um, it had other things it's good for are seeing uh, funny jokes and sort of creating memes and, and stuff like that. And it's, and it's also good for like seeing people like acting like crazy in all sorts of ways you never thought people could act crazy or just saying like things you never thought possible that people could think are expressed publicly. So so that's sort of a schadenfreude type thing and, and probably not like ultimately good in some sort of larger sense, but sort of, you know, like a car, like watching. So this metaphor comes from Max Reed, uh, his newsletter today, actually. He said um, Twitter is sometimes sort of like, um uh people like bystanders like trying to press into like a crime scene and see like the bodies being taken out or something there's like a, a rubbernecking like looking at the disaster sort of aspect to it and yeah that's i think it attracts a certain personality type and the type of person just wants to look at photos of like their cousin's children or something like twitter would alienates that sort of that sort of person but there is yeah there's an addictive aspect to it and so that's why i've been sort of rooting for it to collapse or something or become so unpalatable or start charging or something. So that would help me break my um, addictive <laughs> you tendencies. Want, you want to get off, but you need help getting off. I mean, I think uh, it, yeah, it is sort of, um, I think it's like, it's messed with my mind and my brain in ways that I don't think have like a use outside of Twitter um, such that, you know, I see like a phrase and then a Twitter style joke forms in my mind unbidden and that's good, that good, quote unquote, on Twitter. But th like, I can't monetize that skill. Or you know, <laughs> if I'm talking to normal people, they don't want to hear a like in this economy joke. They don't know like that's a big any sense to them. And it's not even funny outside of Twitter. It's only funny on Twitter. So, 
yeah, so I think it's probably a net negative for me, but I'm, st I'm still on there the way that I've used this metaphor before, sort of like um, someone who has a drinking problem has had plenty of fun times down at the corner bar um, and lots of great memories there. But like if the bar got bulldozed, it would probably be good for the um, local <laughs> drunk who would maybe like start making better decisions. Um, well, I did think to myself, like, let's say it all, it all did. It certainly the last two weeks. I thought like if it all collapsed, what would I do? Like when I would go to Twitter to look for something now, where would I go? Is it like I go to NewYorkTimes.com now to find out? Like, is that the is that the alternative place? Like, what is that? Right. That next step. Right. Or what would be the alternative? Because it's not Facebook or Instagram, I don't think so. For, no, for news. I mean, yeah, I think the Times would be the closest thing. Um that could replace Twitter and they do have sort of like they built in Twitter like updates into their pages. So like if you click on their Ukraine thing, there's like the main article is pinned on top. Someone it's like, a, what's new right a now pin tweet okay. and then updates like short updates are coming in in, in a like timeline like feed. Um, whereas maybe 10 years ago, they would have been one article that they were updating and putting in like the latest thing in the third paragraph or something. Um, so you can say that, you know, Twitter with which pioneered the timeline sort of has changed, you know, has changed news consumption in that way. Um, but yeah, but also like I used to be a huge consumer of blogs in general, Andrew Sullivan's blog, which was sort of a proto Twitter that he would, if there was breaking news, him and his staffers would like put links in and you would check it like every hour or so and, like new stuff would, would be there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, maybe, you know, something like that, like blog type uh, entrepreneurs would try to recreate something along those lines of just intentionally aggregating sources instead of like the algorithm doing it or who you follow doing it. Yeah. I don't know. It's like, I can't really picture it being Mastodon. That's the next thing, but uh, I, right. I, I mean, have really you looked at any of the competitor or copycat sites and uh, I've, I've tried to look at Mastodon and I think like many people, it's like the whole like, oh, pick your server. And like, it's just like, oh, this is too, too complicated. I just want to make an account and start, start looking around. Uh -huh. Um, I, I don't know. I've kind of, I've already left all the Facebook properties. So maybe I'm, I don't know if that oh, interesting. has a certain, in a certain light, but, uh, um, but I don't know. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. What am I going to do without Twitter is maybe a bad, a sad question to ask. I don't, I don't really feel that way. Like, uh, like there'll be a gaping hole in my life without it, but, uh. <laughs> Um, I mean, you know, the idle moments that, you know, you used to have where you would maybe stare off into space or, you know, if you had a book with you, you would, you know, read a book or a magazine or something like now it's, at least for me, it's, it's check Twitter and see what the latest nonsense is. Um, well, what have you thought about his, about Musk's like monetization ideas and, you know, have it in like the whole blue check kind of stuff? <laughs> um, I guess I, I have a few things there. Like, well, one thing is that, Someone said to me recently, like, uh, it's a good product at a bad company. I think it's maybe like the philosophy that Jack had too, right? It's like, it's a, or maybe a better way to put it, it's, it's a good product in a bad business. Like, it's just not really clear how this is, how do you, is the right way for this thing to exist to be a for-profit entity that is monetized? And I know Jack Dorsey said that publicly. Then he said he thought somehow Elon Musk would be the guy to fix that. <laughs> maybe that's questionable now, but mm -hmm. um I think they got to be open to these things. Like, I think it's kind of a trend on the internet in general that ads are not what they used to be, whether that's because of Apple's policies, whether that's, there's a million things it could be from, like, or or just the fact that, like, you have so much more tracking, so much more visibility as an advertiser to your ads working or not and how much they're worth to you. 
that you realize they're actually not worth as much as you used to pay for them. Right. Uh, but it does feel like figuring out a different way to monetize makes sense. Now, there was a lot of stuff about like, oh, if that Twitter might become pay to play or pay to pay to use it at all, right? That you need a subscription to be on Twitter. And that that was like an insane proposal where I'm like, I don't know. It's a little hard for me to say that that's a bad idea. Like they've got to find some way to monetize. And I'm getting, I'm getting value out of the platform. I don't believe I'm contributing back in, in ad viewing what I'm taking out in terms of the amount of usage. I like, mm-hmm. they'd probably be better off saying, Hey, Josh, give us two bucks a month. So you don't have to see any ads and I'd probably do it. And they'd probably make more money off me that way than they're getting today. Mm-hmm. But uh, so I think they should be open. I think part of the one thing that a new CEO should have for Twitter is like, what are the other ways you can monetize this? The blue check thing in particular, I think that was a, just a really bad idea. It's not thought out. And verification, the customer for verification is not the person getting verified. That is not why verification exists. And, mm-hmm. Right? Like I, the new, new York Times does not get verified because the New York Times wants to be verified. I want the New York Times to be verified so that I know when I see a tweet from them, it is from them and not from some dude who changed his profile picture and name to say the New York Times. Mm-hmm. So to me, like that, that is the core misunderstanding of that idea was like, he think it comes from a place, I believe, of like these persecuted in, you know, not really persecuted, but feeling persecuted on Twitter. The blue check is special and I don't have one. Therefore... I should be able to buy one. Like it's that mindset as opposed to actually thinking about what those blue checks are for and what they are meant to represent is that like, this is a, and I think really is important to the idea of Twitter. If like, if you want it to be this open town hall forum where anyone can say whatever they want, how do I know when I'm seeing something from the sort of the real deal versus the millions of impersonators, which is just, to me, it's a -a whack-a-mole trying to try and catch all of these they were, you know, there were things they said about like anyone who doesn't have parody in their name. It is what it's like. You're never going to catch all those people. It makes much more sense to verify from the the other side is like, and there were tight rules around that verification process. Like there were types of people who can be types of businesses and people who can be verified and people who can't. And I think those things all were well, those were well thought out and developed over many years towards a pretty coherent policy. Yeah, I think the way you put it about you know the the main customer of verification was not the person being verified or the entity being verified that that makes a lot of sense. I think they they you know they screwed it up in various ways even before, um, even before Musk came in where they did sort of make it like a badge of like elite in some way, um, hmm. and that it makes I mean it makes sense that you like Eli Lilly wants to be verified as being the actual Eli Lilly and, you know, some sort of regime of like universal verification would make some sort of sense, which I guess Facebook has at least some version of. And, but Twitter has such this, such a culture of like anime avatars and anonymous jokesters and stuff that maybe that would have disrupted the site anyway. But the, I mean, well, there is like that question of like, should drill be verified like is it important to know i'm seeing the real drill <laughs> like if he doesn't deserve to be verified who does kind of mindset to something. right and drill yeah drill also launched a war against the um the newly verified people saying he was going to block anyone who was newly verified who he saw um drill being a sort of savant genius tweeter of the weird from the weird twitter um part of the site or, or era well there have been a lot of tributes to the you know the greatest 
twit tweets and greatest tweeters. Yeah. And I think there's kind of like, it's unambiguous to me that he is the greatest tweeter <laughs> with all of both the positive and negative connotations that that might say, right? He is, he is the king of all posters, so to speak. Right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you had, I, I actually semi jokingly, but only semi jokingly tweeted like, Musk should like try to hire drill to be on like the uh, like accountability board or like the <laughs> censorship board or something. Cause the guy is a genius of the form and he like, he knows more about Twitter than Elon Musk does. Clearly. I think I know more about it than Musk does. It's been, been revealed, but like this guy understands something about the way the site works. Uh, but I guess he, he probably wouldn't actually want to uh, <laughs> the real human who does the site wouldn't want or does the account wouldn't want to, participate but yeah people like you would bring in like rob delaney or something to like serve on the like council of elders within within twitter or um mm. you know or joyce carol oates like you would want people like this um weighing in but yeah but the the fact that there was like people who had some level of prominence who would apply for it and say and like send a copy of the driver's license and then they wouldn't get it like that made it seem like twitter was judging who was worthy of this thing and it wasn't just verifying that a public or semi-public figure. I mean, there is like a, a having, I, I took my company through the process at one point and we were like a small company with not many followers. We got verified, but like there was like, there's a very set criteria of like figures in the following role, you know, roles. You're a journalist at a recognized institution. You're a company that's publicly held or privately held above a certain market. I mean, there was a set of things that were theoretically criteria that, you know, I am not as myself eligible for verification because I don't play one of these roles in society. Mm -hmm. Maybe that list is right or wrong, but to me, it never bothered me that I couldn't get verified. But obviously there's people for whom it's like a big status symbol, a big deal to them that they can't, they don't get a blue check for whatever reason, right? No, I don't think it was intentional. It made sense why it was implemented. I don't think it was intentional that it became this status symbol, but there probably were things they could have done to remove the status symbol sort of thing. Yeah. But yeah, it did become sort of, I mean, multiple people referenced the um, the Dr. Seuss, you know, um, those have stars and those with ours or yeah. whatever <laughs> sort of thing of like, you know, it, it, it just a lot of what happens on Twitter is tribalism and it created like created a tribe of the blue checks who actually had very little in common besides maybe they like worked in journalism at one point or may have worked at BuzzFeed 10 years ago. Um, it, it made it seem like there was this class <laughs> class system set up. And then like there were aspects of like you would, if you were verified, you would see verified replies in, in some way like filtered for you or something. So I think they, I mean, I think they, they screwed a lot of things up, but th that was one thing. I mean, they the idea up. that like there there's, I think drill is a great example of like, you're never going to verify drill. You know, you're never going to like get him to put his real name on there and be that guy. And the idea that you would create a system where he's no longer, you're not able to see his tweets anymore is crazy, right? Like that's part of why people come to Twitter is for these anonymous jokester accounts. That is a, a big, to me, it's actually a significant part of the appeal of Twitter is like these guys can post with impunity. They can say crazy stuff that you wouldn't normally, they're not going out the deep end and threatening people or doing anything dangerous, but just like they can say stuff they wouldn't be willing to otherwise. Yeah, it, there's definitely a like um, class clown like aspect of the site where you had people who are very serious type people putting pronouncements in like Ted Cruz or something. And then you, the, the average, you know, the average person could send them like an image of a poop or something 
like you know that doesn't happen on other parts of real of life or the internet and that's america man that's that's what america's all about <laughs> right no i mean i i said this in a previous episode there's not a lot of times in in life that you could say fuck you to a rich or powerful person and you can do that on twitter uh, maybe you might get a slap on the wrist or something if you use especially bad language but um but yeah you could you can um you you can mock <laughs> you can mock anyone and as long as you probably won't get in trouble if you don't do it in some violent way um you know i'm actually i just got a new york times alert that says uh, at least 1200 twitter workers resigned uh, on thursday um so that would be i guess about a third of the people who were remaining which is less than i'd read in some uh for right. right they say at least so maybe maybe that's you know it could, it could go higher okay let's see do you think that there could be a like good version of twitter um that, that maybe what like like a wikipedia version of twitter or something that isn't being run like it isn't trying to maximize ad views or something or get money out of its users but could be run in a way that like you know with like the ethos of like a message board from 20 years ago um is that is this possible or or no I, I don't I don't know. Like the the problem with Twitter is like the problem with all these things online is it's the people on it that are the problem, right? Like the the platform is like 90% of what you talk about is how does the platform control and moderate and block and flag and otherwise sort of remove the stuff that shouldn't be up there. That's like the biggest problem, which is that part is a hard technology problem to some degree. Uh, whether you could somehow make a Twitter that doesn't have that problem, like I don't I don't know if that's possible. Like, I think that's sort of part of, there's got that tension over that as part of what make, makes it work to some degree. Like, you need you need people pushing the envelope and you need to have some point where it's, like, not okay anymore, probably. Yeah. No, you need you need moderators. I think if, if there's no moderation, then it becomes 4chan and, you know, posting um, Nazi stuff and, yeah. and, like, trying to post child porn and having it be taken down because that's, like, the, one of the few things that's truly illegal to do. But, um... Well, how far is Twitter now from from this state that we're describing, I guess, is one of the interesting questions to me. Like, Musk has come in and sort of made some, like, humongous changes, right? Very, you can argue, you can say they're dumb or, or smart or whatever you want, but he's definitely, like, coming in with an eye towards, we need to make enormous changes here. We need lots of people to go. We need to make huge sweeping product changes. We need to reconsider how we monetize. We need to reconsider how we advertise. And, like, are is that the scale of problems that is that exists there and does it actually need to be resolved by those big changes I think is an interesting question because stuff kind of mostly works there and like if you there was a really interesting thread I wish I could remember who it was a few weeks uh, maybe a week or two ago basically saying like Twitter had enough money in the bank to lose money at the rate that they were losing it for like 10 years or something before they would have real financial problems like it, it's not a company that they were kind of arguing it's not a company that was like about to collapse and go bankrupt without immediate intervention. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know whether the level of crazy bold changes is actually what's needed there. Like it was a mostly functioning ecosystem. Obviously there's people hating different aspects of it, but like it was mostly functioning and couldn't you figure out a way to make changes in a more, I don't want to say gradual in the sense that like, oh, it didn't need bold changes, but couldn't you have sort of tried to, tried to fix it while the engine was still running as opposed to it feels like what's <laughs> going to happen here is like, you know, the engine's fall out on the highway and then try and put it all back together. But we'll see. Obviously, that happens. 
Yeah, I, I think the, the moderation problem is a genuinely difficult one. I mean, I, I was a moderator myself at various times for the comment forums on blogging heads. And, you know, you're basically the, what I learned was you're inevitably going to piss people off because these are not like you, you are not like a learned like expert in any field or anything. And you're, it's not like a legal dispute where the judge has like final authority. Um, and so it's often, yeah, pe there are people who know how to like go right up to the line. And then if a person is going right up to the line over and over and over again, you say, okay, like, let's just get this person out of here. But then they can say, wait, I never, you know, I never did X, I never did Y. And sort of like, it turns into this, <laughs> this sort of, um, like legalistic appeal, but no one, no one is a lawyer. And yeah, so you, the mod, anyway, yeah. the people are always going to hate the mods and, um, you, but you do need some sort of that online. Like this is a, a lesson we've learned. Um, yeah, for sure. And and maybe, you know, banning the Babylon B was like too heavy moderation, but there's plenty of other, you know, if you work within the, like the channels, there's plenty of stuff you can get away with without attracting that sort of attention from the moderators. But yeah, like, you know, the posters always hate the mods. That's that's sort of a rule of, of online life. <laughs> well, I do think it's weird when people are like, so on like that case, for example, it's like there are thousands, millions maybe of people or and organizations posting on Twitter that don't cross the line into hate speech and get banned. So like, it's it not, it's not like these it, people act like there's landmines everywhere and I can't say any, it's like, why don't you try not being a Nazi? Like that is the bar we're setting. It's not that high of a bar to clear. I don't believe that they're, you know, being super draconian and banning people left and right for the faintest glimmer of offense uh, in their posts, right? No, I, I mean, I think they were, at least for a long time, they were too lenient and too free speechy in terms of stuff. And I mean, a lot of, you know, the like anime Nazis like emerged <laughs> around 2015 or so. And um, a lot of those people got banned and then they finally banned a bunch of QAnon people after the insurrection. So they've like, yeah, they've not been uh, wielding the ban hammer in a overly aggressive way, I think. Um, but yeah, I think it's a genuinely, you know, it's, it's sort of a, a no win problem in which inevitably some group of people are going to be pissed off and they can like go and start their own site or buy, I guess, if they have enough money, buy the site and then try to fix it themselves. But that's turning out to be more, more difficult. Yeah, and I think part, part of why I say it's not a technology problem is like, if we can't even articulate the the rule, or if, you know, if people can't say what the line should be and the line is hazy, how the heck is a computer going to, the computer's never going to make that call, right? So. Right, no, I think it's, it requires some amount of human judgment and these are imperfect decisions because you're dealing with, with you know, in, in like the normal legal system, we accept that some, you know, or we're actually think it's a good thing that some guilty people will go free and the, um, you know, we don't want to lock up someone who's innocent, but then we'll of course we know that innocent people do get locked up. So mistakes are made in like every possible way. And we're, but we're still like, I don't know, because <laughs> judges have, they wear black robes and they can order people sent to prison. We're like, okay, this is, if they decide something, you have to go with it. <laughs> like this is, you can't appeal anymore past the Supreme Court, but like, yeah, there's, I mean, Facebook tried to have this like council of elders sort of thing at one point. Um, but yeah, there's no, there's no like true authority online. Anyone can <laughs> more or less say I'm the expert or, or say whatever they want. So it's, it seems intractable to me. Okay. Why don't, why don't we end things there? Is there anything else you want to, you want to add before <laughs> we wrap up? I'm amazed how long I could spend <laughs> talking on this It truly topic, is yeah. such a, uh, each of the conversations I've had about this has gone longer than I, than I thought it would. And it, it, it seems it's such a dumb <laughs> thing in a lot of ways. 
but it you know it's so it's wrapped up in a lot of human i don't know parts of human nature that are strange so i think you can talk about it <laughs> sort of exactly. endlessly okay do you want to share your twitter handle uh if people want to follow you on twitter you're welcome to follow me it's at barn doggy b-a-r-n-d-a-w-g-i-e okay and you don't you're not uh, you consume tweets but you're not a huge tweeter yourself probably wisely i i, I retweet daily and tweet weekly or something like that is what i would say so okay, i try occasionally i can't stop myself but generally <laughs> no it, it yeah and the way you know talking about it sort of like a guilty pleasure or something is is a flavor of the um the the culture on there i i fave a lot of tweets i'll put it that way no that's a generous <laughs> a generous perspective okay and i am a r y h c w c w on twitter and um I, I appreciate you taking the time and giving a insider perspective on these things. Um, so I guess we'll have to see what happens. Who knows? Who knows? I mean, okay. Would you predict that the site could just like go offline for some length of time anytime in the near future? Or do you think that's not going to happen? I think that's unlikely to be the demise. I could be wrong, but uh, to me, it's like, I think what was underestimated by Musk is just how, how, this thing is so fragile. It's not a physical thing that you're holding on to and it's worth a bunch of money, right? It's like, if people start leaving, they could all disappear pretty quick and you're left with nothing. And I do think there is a risk of that if the right circumstances occur. Now, an extended outage could certainly be a driver for something like that, but uh, mm -hmm. I don't know. I guess I, part of me wants to bet on, on the software all my colleagues wrote not tipping over right away. Right. No, I mean, if if all the funny, entertaining, smart people who I follow decide we're all leaving, either going something, go somewhere else or just, you know, um, getting offline, then it, there wouldn't be a strong reason for me to stay there. Yeah, just it could to go stay. to zero real quick, right? Yeah, like I get, yeah, it's like shouting into the void if the people you want to sort of like hang out with in a virtual way aren't there anymore. The Google plusification of Twitter. Uh... <laughs> right. <laughs> You could, yeah, so it, there's an intangible aspect to this that yeah, I, I don't think Musk fully appreciated. Okay, why, why don't we end things there? Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Arya. For, for coming on. Thanks to all the viewers and listeners, and we'll see you again next time.